Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. With ballots printed and the election less than a month away, Sarah Mercer and David Meschke unpack what's on the Colorado ballot and the current political climate. They cover the strength of the state's mail-in ballot process, congressional races and judicial retention elections, and the details of all the initiatives and measures that made it on the Colorado ballot. Welcome to another edition of the Brownstein podcast series. I'm shareholder Sarah Mercer, and of course, with me, as always, is uh, one of my law partners, David Meschke. David, thanks for being here. Thank you, Sarah. Well, it felt like this day would never come. We've been keeping our listeners apprised of what's been going on with the ballot measures since pretty much the beginning of the cycle. Um, we tracked, you know, over 300 measures this cycle. There were so many. It was just a very, an extraordinarily active year. And here we are, ballots are printed. We are less than a month away from the election, Sarah. That is so wild. And even though the election isn't until November 3rd, voters in Colorado will be voting starting as early as next week. That's right, Sarah. And we have a lot on the ballot, which uh, for our listeners means that this podcast is going to be probably a little bit longer than some previous ones we have had. (laughs) So sit down, pour a second cup of coffee, uh, plan on doing an extra lap around the park uh, because we've got a lot to go through. You know, the reason that voters may be starting to vote next week is because Secretary of State's office is going to be, um, and I I should say all of the county clerks are going to be mailing out the ballots uh, on October 9th. Correct, Sarah. And, you know, we were talking in Colorado about a a mail-in ballot system, which those of us here in the state are are very familiar with. But mail-in ballots and, and in general, just voting not in person has become a hot button issue this year. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, we've had we have an all mail-in election. Uh, certainly, you can still vote in in person if you want. Um, you know, voters are free to go to the polling centers that are around the state and cast a vote in person. But our all mail in system is one in which every registered voter receives a ballot in the mail and then can return that ballot at their convenience, either by mailing it back in or returning it to uh, a polling center or putting it in one of the numerous drop boxes uh, in each county. We're so used to this. I mean, this is how we vote in our primary elections. This is how we vote in our uh, general elections. It's how we voted in the presidential primary, which is a separate election altogether. You know, this is something we're really comfortable with. And hearing about concerns about the process in the news has, you know, for me been uh, a little bit surprising. And I know you did a little bit of research into the the statistics around um, voter fraud in Colorado. What did you find? Well, I did, Sarah. And, and like you mentioned, uh, those of us in Colorado don't think that this mail-in process for you know electing our state officials and national officials and and everything is, is that controversial. Um, it's it's really a bipartisan system here in Colorado, and you know it's been referred to by uh, people on both sides as kind of the platinum standard here in the United States. And I know that a few other states uh, have mail-in ballot systems that are are similar, more on the on the West Coast. Um, uh, that that are like Colorado's. Um, so I, I did a little research, as Sarah indicated, and it, it's interesting some of the statistics that we've garnered throughout the years since Colorado started with the 
the mail-in system. So for those that want to know, incoming ballots are fed through a machine that checks the signature on the envelope against each voter's on-file signature. And uh, we've done statistics here in Colorado that show that of over 200,000 ballots cast by mail in the primary that took place uh, at the end of June, only 1.8% were rejected because of a mismatch or lack of signature. Um, so that that's very small amount. And beyond that, uh, cases of fraud are very rare. Uh, in 2018, for example, 0.0027% of the over 2.5 million ballots cast statewide were referred to the district attorneys for further investigation. And uh, the Heritage Foundation, um, which tends to lean conservative, uh, has recorded only 14 cases of election-related offenses in Colorado since 2005. Uh, so that shows that, at least in, here in Colorado, our system is doing its job and uh, fraud is very rare. And to kind of add some more color to this, each of our state's 64 county clerks run the elections uh, according to the guidelines set by the Secretary of State, which um, right now is Jenna Griswold and state law. There are minor differences among the counties, but by and large, this is a statewide system. However, uh, if you live in Denver, like I do, um, your ballot is not printed within the state. It's actually printed in the state of Washington and then trucked to Colorado in uh, locked semis um, with tracking devices on them. Um, so kind of an interesting thing. Uh, but overall, you know, our, our system seems to be doing its job. There's a couple of things that really jump out to me, which is when the machine checks the signature on the envelope against each voter's on-file signature. And as you said, I mean, that is a startling number that only 1.8% are rejected because of a mismatch or a lack of signature. And I do know that there's a process in place for that 1.8% of ballots. They aren't just disregarded. Those voters are contacted and have the opportunity to cure their signature so that their vote still counts. Isn't that right? That, that's correct. And, and actually, uh, as long as they have your telephone number on file, you can get a text message saying that your um, ballot was rejected based off of a signature issue. And then um, as long as there's time available, can correct that before election day. That's really, really interesting. Um, and that's such an interesting fact, too, about where the ballots for Denver are printed um, and that they're trucked in, into Colorado. I know the former head elections official, from Denver. Um, she has since moved on from that post uh, just a couple of years ago, actually, and is helping to run elections all across the country and consult. Because as you said, you know, I think the Colorado system really is seen as a platinum standard. And interestingly, this has been such a big issue that it was just announced today that Secretary of State Griswold is going to be testifying before Congress. So we will see. I know one of her priorities was to carry on the work that uh, former Secretary of State Wayne Williams had um, undertaken around issues around cybersecurity to make sure that Colorado's uh, elections not only are secure from a voter fraud perspective, but also from any external threats from a cybersecurity perspective. So it's a complicated process, but um, I'm, I'm really, I feel really, after hearing about what's going on in other states, I feel like I had taken it for granted how well things work here in Colorado and how non-controversial voting is. And I feel really grateful that we have the system that we do. 
So with that, you know, David, let's turn to talk a little bit about what's on the ballot. We've got the presidential election going on. Is there a presidential race happening? I couldn't tell. There appears to be something. Um, <laughs> uh, there have been so many recent events that it, it almost uh, takes away from the fact that there is a presidential election um, this year. <laughs> it's it, The news cycle, I think, is, is out of whack at the moment. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, it's so interesting. It's, of course, you're being sarcastic. It's like the opposite of what you say, which is that, you know, there's so much news around what's happening. I feel like we are literally monitoring. And of course, you know, our deep concerns about um, the president and the first lady and our thoughts that they both have a speedy recovery. But we're literally tracking every move of both President Trump and of uh, Vice President Joe Biden that um, it feels like that there almost is nothing else that's going on. And it's just so important for people to know that there's all these other races that are happening. And I've heard it said that America has a local political institution, but nationalized politics. And that has never felt more true. It feels like all the dialogue and everything we're talking about is about the presidential election and a little bit on the federal side with the Senate but really where it really matters in the day-to-day life for most voters is much farther down the ballot, which is what we're going to get into. Before we move it real quickly into the Senate race, I will mention on the presidential side for our listeners to go to our website and uh, look for our client alert on what happens if a presidential candidate dies or becomes incapacitated. This is something that our clients have asked us about. Um, it's something certainly that we don't want to take lightly. Um, our client alert wasn't intended to be, um, isn't intended at all to be alarmist in any way. Just um, really wanted to lay out the process for people because it's such an unusual circumstance. We have two candidates who are both in their 70s uh, and we have a, a, a really serious uh, virus uh, that the president has. And so uh, that goes and to have that circumstance this close to an election when millions of Americans have actually already started voting is really unusual. So uh, check that client alert out. On the Senate side, David, this is something probably that our listeners know about. We've got the race between incumbent Cory Gardner and uh, challenger, uh, former governor John Hickenlooper. That's right, Sarah. And, and as a lot of people in Colorado know, and, and probably nationwide, this race may decide uh, the majority in the Senate. I will mention that Senator Gardner and Governor Hickenlooper actually had their first debate last week on Friday. The Pueblo Chieftain hosted it. It's online if anyone missed it. And they will be having several other debates, including their first televised debate on Nine News, and I believe uh, Colorado Public Radio is also going to be broadcasting it uh, on October 9th. So um, it's definitely something for Colorado voters to listen into. Moving on, I, I wanted to mention the, the congressional House races that we have. Most of our races involve uh, incumbents. So we've got uh, Representative Diane DeGette, Representative Jonah Goose. We've also got Representative Ken Buck uh, and Doug Lamborn and Ed Perlmutter. I think the two races that are worth noting is in the 6th Congressional District, which is sort of the south suburbs in the, in the Denver metro area, uh, Representative Jason Crow, who defeated incumbent Republican uh, Representative um, Mike Kaufman in 2018, has a race against uh, his challenger, uh, Steve House, who's a very well-known Republican. Uh, he used to be the chair of the Colorado Republican Party. And that seat is still, it appears, kind of you know up for grabs, um, that district. And so that will be one to watch on election night. 
But the one that really has made a lot of news is out in the third congressional district, which is in more of the western part of the state, a district that is very large and spans all the way from Aspen down to Pueblo. And here we had the Republican candidate, Lauren Boebert. She defeated the Republican incumbent, Scott Tipton, in a primary that it was a really surprise uh, victory. Um, And she is challenging a very well-known Democrat up there, Diane Mitch Bush. And if Diane Mitch Bush is able to win that race, I think that will be an indication that Colorado really has turned from purple to blue because that district has historically kind of maintained a bit of that more kind of Western um, kind of Republican uh, style. And, you know, I just think that that's going to be a real bellwether for Colorado. Um, So we will for sure be keeping our eye on that district. So I know that most of our statewide elected officials, those races happened in 2018. This for governor, attorney general, secretary of state, treasurer, those races are going to happen again in 2022, but there are some other statewide races on the ballot, right? That's correct. Uh, there are three of the seven seats for the State Board of Education and also three of the nine seats for the State Board of Regents. I know that uh, the Democrats want to turn um, how the University of Colorado system has been run by Republicans over the last several decades um, to Democratic control. Um, and we'll see if that is something that starts uh, at, at this coming election or stays in Republican hands. In addition, we also have retention of two Colorado Supreme Court justices, Melissa Hart and Carlos Samore. As many of our listeners know, uh, Colorado system is a little bit different for the Supreme Court than some other places. Uh, they're not elected the justices aren't. Um, Rather, a commission selects three names and then the governor selects a new justice. Um, We'll actually have that happen here soon because Chief Justice Coates is retiring. So Governor Polis will select a new justice from three uh, yet-to-be-termined names. And then the Colorado Supreme Court will then, for the first time in I I believe it's history, uh, rotate the chief justice position among the justices. Um, It will start off with Justice Boatwright. And for full disclosure, I'm happy to say I was or is one of his former clerks. So I'm very excited for him to become chief justice. And then um, Justice Marquez will take over after that. And then they'll rotate among the other justices. Um, So that's a new development over at the Colorado Supreme Court. I have a sense that there may be more eyes on our judicial retention elections maybe than in past years, again, just simply because it's almost impossible to escape the conversation that's happening nationally around judicial selection for federal judgeships and certainly with the vacancy created by the the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so I wonder if voters are going to be more interested in this. And I would really encourage all of our listeners to go to the uh, Colorado Judicial Performance Commission website, where they can find the surveys that the Judicial Performance Commission conducts of the individuals who appear before the judges, different attorneys, other judges. Um, You know, they really solicit a lot of information about each of the judges. Colorado has a very unique uh, merit selection system. Judges don't run for election in Colorado, but they do have to stand for retention um, election, which is part of creating accountability without politicizing the judgeships. And I, I should also mention that in Colorado, 
judges are required to retire when they turn 72. So we do have mandatory retirement for our judges. So again, uh, it's the Judicial Performance Commission. There is a an enormous amount of information about the judges that are on the ballot. Um, and I would encourage any, everyone to take a look at those. Should we switch over to talk about ballot measures? Uh, well, Sarah, that seems to be a topic we talk about um, almost every time. So why not? Um, be- <laughs> yeah. Before we jump on in, um, if you're like me, you've already received your blue book in the mail. Um, that's It's uh, very thick this year. And uh, that provides more analysis and um, a lot more information than we can cover in this podcast um, regarding the, the measures. Um, to g- kind of give you an overview of, of what's on the statewide ballot, there are 11 measures. Um, seven are citizen-initiated ballot measures. Last time we were talking about the ballot measures, a number of those were still in the process of having their signatures validated. All those that we we had mentioned that were in that process uh, ended up making the ballot. Um, We also have three measures that were referred by the Colorado General Assembly, and then one that was referred by the people. We'll start kind of with the ones that that were citizen-initiated. So one of them, um, which was number 76, which is citizen qualification of electors, that's now going to be Amendment 76 on the ballot. And an amendment means it's an amendment to the Constitution. So it actually will need, um, per the state Constitution, 55% of people to vote in favor of it for it to join the now lengthy Colorado Constitution. Um, That initiative changes the wording in the Colorado Constitution or would change the wording uh, to state that only a U.S. citizen instead of every U.S. citizen is qualified to vote. Uh, Practically speaking, that wouldn't have any impact, although um, it probably is geared to trying to solve an issue that hasn't arisen yet, which is if Colorado somehow would decide to allow non-U.S. citizens to vote. Um, so it seems to be more immigration-focused, even though uh, if, if you just read the measure, you wouldn't, wouldn't know about it. Um, another one is uh, what was measure number 107, which uh, now is Proposition 114, that is restoration of, of gray wolves. Um, and that would be for the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission to develop a plan to restore and manage gray wolves in Colorado. And I know, Sarah, you've you've spoken to, I believe, a rancher ab- about this measure. Yeah, you know, I was out on the Western Slope and I got to hear um, from a rancher and it just became so obvious to me in listening to her that in the Denver metro area, this issue just, you know, might seem, you know, more benign and difficult to understand what the exact impact is. And it was just so obvious to me that in the more outlying areas of the state, this is a huge issue. So I would really encourage our listeners to, uh, you know, take a look at the arguments for and against really closely, because I realized that I was not very educated on the issue when I, when I heard from her. So a uh, very important ballot measure. So those are two of them. Another one, um, is a prohibition on late-term abortions. That was measure number 120. That will now be called Proposition 115. Um, abortion measures seem to, to make it on the ballot fairly regularly, and this uh, election cycle is no exception. Moving on, we also have a citizen-initiated ballot measure um, that would allow local voter approval of gaming limits in uh, Blackhawk Central City and Cripple Creek. That's Amendment 77. Gaming, as Sarah has talked about, 
repeatedly in the past has become a common issue in Colorado. We have legalized uh, sports gambling here and uh, it continues to gain entrance into the ballot that seems like every cycle. Another measure that Sarah can talk about here in more detail that has garnered a lot of uh, statewide attention is Measure 283, which is Proposition 118 involving a paid family and medical leave insurance program. I know the Denver Post had a large article about uh, this issue in, I believe, today's paper. Yeah, and we talked about this before that, you know, we have seen the citizen-initiated ballot measure sort of process become something that's been used to gain leverage in the legislature. And there was no better example of that than Proposition 118. We had seen for two years negotiations around a more robust paid family and medical leave program. Those negotiations fell apart back in 2019 when there was a kind of a last minute desire to try to broker and negotiate maybe more a, a more private like a private option rather than creating a state-run program. And it just didn't really work. And then we had the COVID crisis in uh, early in, you know, early in the spring in 2020. And so what we were left with really was this citizen-initiated ballot measure that the proponents, the legislative proponents and bill sponsors who were trying to work out, you know, a, a different kind of deal in the legislature are now supporting this as an option. And it would create a new state-run insurance program uh, where employers and employees would pay into the program. There's certain exemptions for employers to pay into the program if they're under a certain size to allow for 12 weeks of paid family and medical leave, which is more robust than the federal benefit um, and is a totally new uh, and state-run created program. This is largely opposed by the business community who has concerns about the program solvency. Um, and certainly there is large and widespread support from the business community on supporting um, paid family and medical leave, uh, paid time off for employees. Um, but, you know, I think most folks feel like this isn't the right way to go about it. So it will be interesting to see what voters have to say about this. Um, it's also it will be interesting to see if they are reflecting on their own uh, struggles through the pandemic with respect to this program and whether or not that will, you know, change their minds. Uh, maybe if they were more reluctant to create a new state program or to pay more to pay into this system, maybe they might feel differently now uh, having gone through the pandemic. So we will see how this uh, how this ballot measure turns out. I will I would anticipate that this is one that that we're going to be seeing commercials on as we get closer and closer uh, to the election for sure. And then the, the final two of the citizen-initiated uh, ballot measures uh, involve the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, or, or TABOR, um, even though this is an even election year. And we've talked about in previous podcasts how in odd election years, uh, there can be measures uh, involving TABOR, but uh, not non-TABOR-related measures. Um, we still have Tabor involved in this election. Um, we have Proposition 116 and Proposition 117. And Sarah, uh, can you talk a little bit about the difference between those two? Yeah, well, they're really different measures. Um, I will say, you know, it's fascinating. Proposition 116, this is a measure that would, would reduce um, the state income tax by a pretty small kind of margin, but um, it would reduce our state income tax, our flat state income tax that we have. And I have to say, this is not the state income tax measure that I anticipated seeing on the ballot. 
you know, what we had thought would, um, would, we would see because there were so many versions of this, the measure as we were moving through the system was, um, a measure that would change Colorado's state income tax from a flat tax to a graduated, um, income tax. And in full disclosure, I was, uh, the attorney representing some of the opponents of those measures, but it was very interesting to see this measure kind of slide through uh, without, I think, a whole lot of folks like knowing that it was was sort of in the queue. And I think there was some thought by the proponents of this measure that they wanted to get this measure on the ballot in part because if another, it would be seen maybe as a competing measure and as a defensive way to deal with the other potential uh, income tax measures that would change the system from a flat to a graduated income tax. And we saw that strategy succeed when we had the, as you'll remember, uh, when we had the measures to increase taxes for um, transportation, we had two competing measures, and there is uh, some uh, analysis that um, some you know pollsters have done that voter when voters see that there's sort of two competing measures that that can sometimes be something that makes it more difficult for even one of them to pass. So that's sort of the story behind 116 and and make, why that's such an interesting measure. The Second measure that we have that is really much more directly related to Tabor is Proposition 117, which requires voter approval for state enterprises that are created. And, you know, as most of our listeners will know, you know, one way that the state legislature has dealt with Tabor's restrictions on tax increases and on spending limits is to look at and examine the opportunity of creating an enterprise, which is a vehicle through which the state can kind of set up a separate account, if you will, in the state budget, um, set up kind of a separate place for revenue to be held where a fee can be charged, not a tax, but a fee can be charged. And that revenue then goes into that enterprise to provide a very specific service. And the Colorado Supreme Court has held that enterprises are not taxes and are not subject to TABOR. So they don't have those same restrictions. And we saw the first, really one of the biggest debates that we had around enterprises was around the hospital fee, uh, hospital provider fee enterprise that was created several years ago. And so this proposition for TABOR proponents really is aimed at closing what they see is a loophole in TABOR and would require voter approval for these enterprises that honestly, the legislature, it appears, are looking at more and more to try to deal with some of our um, budget shortfalls. Well, speaking to the legislature, we have three referred measures from the General Assembly. Um, We've already mentioned gaming. Um, One of them, Amendment C, uh, concerns charitable games uh, such as bingo and and raffles. Um, We do also have two other um, measures that are going to garner a lot more attention. One of them, Amendment B, would repeal the Gallagher Amendment, and I know I've already seen commercials on that. And then there's also Proposition EE, which um, would create a state statute to increase tobacco taxes and create a new e-cigarette tax to fund various health and education programs. Although, Sarah, I I know you have some updates on Proposition EE and what it would do, and then also um, some more information on, on the potential repeal of the Gallagher Amendment. Yeah, well, this was Proposition EE is so interesting because um, it is a measure that got um, sort of wedged in with the issues around the pandemic. So 
originally the idea of tax of increasing the taxes on tobacco products and taxing um, other nicotine products, creating a vaping tax, is something that the governor has long uh, talked about. Um, well, I guess not that long. He's been in office for just a couple years, but has been talking about since he came into office. Um, as part of a way to create his universal, which is part of a way to create universal uh, pre-K, uh, preschool uh, here in Colorado. This is a huge priority for the governor. Um, he helped to expand all-day kindergarten, uh, was one of his, the very first priorities and one of the first things that he did when he came into office. And seeing um, an extension of that early education and growing the Colorado preschool program is just something that he is really, really committed to. So, um, what happened with Proposition EE was when it was, um, you know, first drafted and was was being thought about, um, because as you'll remember, there were citizen-initiated measures that were uh, in the sort of in the hopper and in the works as well. Um, the revenue was designated to go, you know, right away uh, to increase the funding for Colorado's preschool program. But because of the pandemic, initially the, the $3 billion shortfall that was forecasted for the Colorado budget the revenue allocation structure was altered a little bit for Proposition EE so that the first two years of revenue go into the general fund to help backfill some of this shortfall that we're anticipating. And then from there on out, uh, the revenue goes to fund um, universal pre-K for, for Coloradans. So that's just, that was, a, was interesting to see that kind of get rearranged a little bit. Again, that allocation got rearranged directly because of the pandemic. And then the last one that you mentioned um, in terms of legislatively referred measures is Amendment BB. Um, I have had the pleasure uh, of working with the Downtown Colorado Inc. and the um, Colorado Economic uh, Development Council to help educate uh, voters um, and other local elected officials all around the state on what the Amendment B would do and what the Gallagher Amendment is. Um, I was able to moderate five discussions over the course of uh, the month of September, which they deemed to be Gallagher Month. Um, and I, I was able to present with Reeves Brown from Building a Better Colorado, who just, they have a wonderful video on their website about how Gallagher works and what it does. It's just really, really terrific. The Colorado Fiscal Institute also has a short five-minute video about Gallagher uh, because it really is quite complicated. So Gallagher was passed back in the 80s, um, and it fixes the commercial property uh, tax rate and pegs the allocation of Colorado's property taxes to a certain percentage coming from the uh, Colorado residential uh, property tax and the, the rest of it coming from Colorado's commercial property taxes. And the result of um, Tabor laid on top of that what, and, and the increase of our property taxes has been is this ratchet down effect of the residential property taxes that are collected by the counties. Residential property taxes, they help to fund our school districts, they help to fund our fire districts and our metro districts and other local special districts that communities rely on for things like their infrastructure and other essential services. And there really has been a disparate impact on the rural areas of Colorado. And so the legislature has studied this issue for two years, and they came to agreement um, about putting this measure uh, on the ballot to repeal the Gallagher Amendment and to fix the commercial and the property and the residential property tax rates at their current rates to stop this erosion of the property tax revenue uh, that especially these rural counties and these rural local districts are um, collecting. So it's something that is really important. It's something that's going to be very uh, confusing for voters. Uh, what's really um, important 
And as you said, you've already seen the, um, the commercials for it. But what's really important about this amendment is how much bipartisan support there is around this. Uh, I heard um, Bernie Busher, uh, who's one of the big supporters of this, I heard him say, you know, it's pretty rare when you see um, groups like, um, you know, a, a pretty more conservative business group like, you know, Colorado Concern coming together with the labor unions on a bill where you have the, um, you know, the chambers of commerce, you know, working together, you know, with other uh, consumer groups um, to support, you know, an effort like this. Uh, and I really think that we have seen this really broad coalition of folks come together around it. So we'll see how that how that one shakes out. You know, the issue for voters is, although the property tax rates, you know, freeze um, where they are, uh, you know, voters might worry that their property taxes are going to have a chance in the future at some time to possibly go up. Um, And so that's something they'll be thinking about, as well as thinking about if this is an issue for certain local jurisdictions, then they can just come to their local voters um, and try to resolve it. Uh, The legislature certainly thought that a more wholesale approach was really important, in part because when the revenues for local school districts goes down, there's another amendment that's in our constitution, Amendment 23, that requires the state to fill in any gaps in that revenue. And so more and more of the state budget um, is being allocated to K through 12 education as the local tax revenues that are being created go down. So there is a bigger statewide impact that the legislature was certainly worried about. So we, we will see. Um, I think we've got one more statewide measure for folks. Right. And it's, it's an odd one, Sarah. We, we've talked about this at, at, during prior podcasts, but there's what's called a veto referendum. That is a type of measure that goes through a citizen signature petition, kind of like citizen-initiated measures. But rather than proposing something new, it would repeal a law that was recently passed by the General Assembly. In this case, there is Proposition 113, which would repeal the General Assembly here in Colorado's decision to join the National Popular Vote Interstate Commerce, uh, uh, or Compact, sorry. And that compact is made up of states who decided that they want to give their electoral votes for the presidential candidate, um, that's the U.S. presidential candidate, we're back to national politics here, um, that wins the most votes nationwide. And this compact would actually not go into effect until enough states joined it so that they would have the, or go past that 270 electoral college threshold. So this veto referendum would take Colorado out of that compact um, and obviously is a a highly partisan issue and um, probably something we will also see on TV as we move forward. Yeah, I'll just mention on the national popular vote, you know, we have seen throughout, you know, our country's history um, times when the person who won our presidency uh, won the electoral college, but um, failed to win the popular vote. That has happened. But if that happens Um, multiple times in a row, you know, or a certain number of times in a certain number of elections, it will be interesting to see if there are voters who start to care about this. Because I think there are compelling reasons for the Electoral College. When I was watching the legislature uh, debate the national popular vote statute, it was not necessarily a party, like it didn't break across party lines wholly. I mean, there were legislators um, on both sides of the aisle who had their reasons for supporting or opposing, you know, joining the national popular vote. And so it will be, it'll be interesting to see how voters internalize that and how this one shakes out. 
And, and for those that have been following the presidential election, whether intentionally or unintentionally, um, you've probably realized that like what happened in the last presidential election, there's a good chance that whoever wins the popular vote may not win the um, electoral college vote. And, you know, that's happened a couple times in the last several uh, presidential elections and, and could happen again here. Um, it looks like polling right now, if it stays true, that would not matter. But um, that's something that could, if this compact goes into effect, really alter that dynamic. Um, and as Sarah said, um, if the national popular vote is how we elect our presidents, that takes some uh, shine away from those battleground states that get a lot of attention every four years. And then, Sarah, we have talked about uh, candidates on the ballot. We've talked about uh, ballot measures that are on the statewide ballot. And I know that when I get my ballot, I'm going to have even more on there because I live in Denver and there are 12 local ballot measures. Um, and uh, Denver's not alone. There are local ballot measures um, across the state. We are not done yet, David. <laughs> we are not done yet. Yeah, you, like many voters um, in Denver, uh, in addition to seeing your 11 statewide measures that are in your state blue book, you also received a very hefty local ballot um, issue like book. Um, it's not blue. Uh, it has some blue on it. <laughs> but um, there's 12 local measures um, in Denver. So people in Denver are going to be voting on, um, you know, a whopping 23 ballot measures. I was just thinking, thank goodness, the vast majority, I don't know if it's all, I, I just hesitate to say all because I don't know every jurisdiction in the entire state. But um, thank goodness, the vast majority of local elections are in odd years. That's all I have to say, because this ballot is really, really big. And, you know, we talk a lot, we've talked in the past about voter fatigue. Um, but, you know, Colorado voters are really used to seeing and having a really big ballot um, in presidential years. They they know and they know what to expect. And because they do have the time to look through everything and vote um, from the convenience of their home and take some time and do it over a couple of days and be able to do their research. I, I think voters in Colorado, it's really important to give them the credit that they're due for persisting <laughs> through these huge, huge ballots. Um, you know, local measures fall into, you know, a couple of categories. Um, you talked about, you know, how, you know, from a statewide level for Tabor measures, we often see the most action on those um, in odd number years because there's just a little less competition than in the even years. But, you know, for local districts, there are always Tabor measures. So we've got in almost every single, and I've looked at um, many of the ballots for, for the counties, and in almost every single jurisdiction, there are going to be Tabor measures around for school districts, for fire protection districts, for public improvement districts, for metro districts, for water conservation districts. And these are the, the measures that ask voters for a specific, because remember, Tabor applies both to state and local governments. So it applies at all level of governments in Colorado. So these measures ask voters um, for authorization to increase taxes and also for bonding permission um, or to debruce and retain revenue. Uh, and there's also actually uh, a set of ballot measures uh, that we see, and this is particularly true with fire districts, that de-gallegorize. So we have a de measures, uh, we have de measures, and those allow the uh, 
these degallagrizing measures allow the the residential property mill levy to float so that those fire protection districts don't lose their revenue. Of course, if if Gallagher is repealed, voters approve Amendment B, those won't become an issue anymore. So there is a wide variety of measures. I wanted to just take note because we definitely have started to see a lot of trends, which is that in these uh, local TABOR measures, we see a very specific explanation of what the revenue, not only of how much revenue is going to be raised, which is what's required uh, to be disclosed by Tabor, but what the revenue is going to be spent on. I noticed that, you know, in the city of Loveland, which is up in in, in Larimer County, they are asking voters, there's a measure to ask voters for a 1% sales uh, increase in the sales tax for specifically local public safety, local city uh, infrastructure, and city operations and maintenance. So like very, very specific. Um, you know, there's the city of Windsor, also up in Larimer County, County is asking for a 3% lodging tax specifically to promote tourism, to try to bring conventions, to support the development of uh, local businesses. So what we see is a really explicit uh, reason for a particular tax. You know, another good example is up in Adams County, they are going to have two tax-related measures. And these aren't for new taxes, but these are rather to extend existing taxes. So up there in Adams County, they've got an open space tax and they have um, a measure, measure local measure 1A, that is seeking to extend uh, the open space tax, which is set to expire. Um, and this helps to, you know, preserve the land for trails and open space in the, in, in the community. And then also they have another one similarly to extend uh, a county sales tax to be able to use those funds for infrastructure. And so, you know, we really do see so much specificity at that local level of, of how the money is going to be spent. And if you remember from the transportation tax measure that we had, um, that also spelled out exactly what the money was going to be used for. But at a statewide level, that wasn't successful. We see a lot more success uh, at the local level with that. And I'm going to mention just a couple of other measures because, you know, I think Colorado Springs is a really great example of a district that is more Republican, but that succeeds in persuading voters to allow the government to collect and raise more revenue uh, for very specific things. And, And as I was reviewing the ballot down in El Paso County and specifically the one for Colorado Springs, I noticed that they have a debrucing measure But that mentions the COVID-19 pandemic. It's the only one that I've seen. There may be others around the state, but this is the only one that I've seen. And I just, I I thought it was so interesting that I wanted to just, to just read it. It, it says without imposing any new tax or increasing the rate of any existing tax and to provide adequate municipal services after the economic disruption caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, shall the city of Colorado Springs be permitted to retain and spend up to $1.9 million of revenues. That's the the, the rest of it is sort of the debrucing um, measure. But the fact that this measure specifically refers to the pandemic is just, I think that's, you know, that is definitely something that we haven't seen before. Colorado Springs also has two, we talked a little bit about dueling measures, um, and they have two measures that, uh, regarding their parks. They had some citizens who proposed a measure uh, to require uh, for the conveyance of land for parks in the in within the city to require a supermajority of council, but also to require voter approval, and the city council seeing that this might be a pro- might be an issue. Um, former Secretary of State uh, Wayne Williams, who's now on the city council there, he kind of 
came up with a compromise, uh, which I think is something that he's really, really good at. We saw that when he was Secretary of State, and um, we I think we're going to see more. And when he was the county clerk, and I think we're going to see more and more of that as, as a city council person. But he brokered kind of this compromise to have another measure, which is uh, local measure 2C, to require a supermajority of council, but not to take every parkland conveyance to the voters. Uh, This is supported by uh, the mayor, John Southers, who's one of Colorado's great statesmen. And it will be interesting to see, again, how that gets parsed out by voters. But, you know, we just, we really do see these very, very local issues um, that voters are going to, that are so far away from what's happening at the the national level um, that voters are going to be reviewing and looking at. As for Denver, as we talked about, there is a lot on the ballot there. I think most notably, There are two TABOR measures to increase taxes, one, uh, which is local measure 2A, to increase um, sales tax, to have an increase in sales tax to um, create a source of revenue for the city to work on its um, renewable energy efforts, its kind of climate change efforts to uh, attempt to deal more with um, climate change and to create a source of funding that the city can draw on um, in order to you know, become more um, climate friendly. And then the second is another sales tax increase to help create a fund to deal with homelessness, which has become a very big issue uh, in the city and county of Denver over the last uh, few years and has become an even bigger issue during the pandemic. Um, We've seen some homeless encampments set up. Um, The mayor uh, and council are really struggling on how to deal with it, on how to deal with the issues. Not only we've seen some court challenges, um, so not only dealing with the rights um, of individuals, but also dealing and and really from a more, um, you know, policy standpoint, kind of what to do in a constructive way about the homeless population, but also having the money to do it because solutions often cost money. So those are, I think, two really, really key issues. The voters in Denver have historically been I don't really know how else to say it, but kind of price insensitive. (laughs) So they are more likely to vote for increases in sales tax. Um, And I will be very interested to see if voters in Denver reach a saturation point um, on that and see how these these measures shake out. Uh, We also have a couple of measures there. Um, You know, there was a lot of turnover on the city council um, in, in their last election in 2019. And we have seen some changes. There's a some of the ballot measures go toward creating more council um, oversight um, over the mayor. So we have some um, measures to uh, increase the city council's budgeting authority. That's local measure 2G. And then local measure 2E would require the city council to approve the, the mayor's appointments. So there is a lot out there. There's a lot on the ballot. But, you know, I'm really, really interested to see how all of this shakes out. I think, you know, David, as we kind of move to sort of close things out and round this out, I think it's only fitting that we remind our our listeners of, you know, some of the deadlines that are coming up. Uh, October 26th is the deadline to register to vote online. In Colorado, though, you can vote all the way up until election day. Uh, You just go to a polling center in person and you can register to vote and then they'll give you a ballot and you can vote. Do you want to mention a little bit about Go Vote Colorado? Because this is such a great resource. Right. And I think we've mentioned this at previous podcasts, but GoVoteColorado.gov is an excellent website uh, that um, not only gives just general deadlines uh, um, regarding the Colorado's upcoming election, but also 
can help voters understand what their current voter registration status is, including checking um, your address on file. I know if you're like me, you've moved um, periodically over the last several years. Um, and um, it also provides information on the status of your ballot. And I know that some people like me uh, get email updates or, or text updates on the status of the ballot. But you can also, if, if you didn't receive one or if you didn't provide that option, you can, you can go to govotecolorado.gov um, to check the status of your ballot. Um, and, and as Sarah has mentioned, um, you know, in Colorado, you can mail in your ballot. If you do choose to mail it in, um, the Secretary of State recommends mailing it in at least eight days before the election. I know uh, nationally there's been a lot of talk about the Postal Service and how long it's been taking. There was a lawsuit and um, a lot of uh, social media attention over um, some incorrect statements regarding how quickly you have to mail in your ballot. Um, and the Secretary of State has done a great job of, of specifying that Colorado is different than elsewhere in the country and that really you need to mail it in at least eight days um, before the election. Um, but if you prefer to vote at the polls, you can always vote in person. You can um, also drop off your ballot at one of those boxes around the state. And when you look at your ballot, you, uh, it always tells you uh, a number of those places that um, you can do that. And if you do want to drop off your ballot or, or vote in person, you need to do so um, before seven seven o'clock on election day. So there's a lot that can happen People are going to start voting here in the state uh, starting next week and, and all the way up um, through uh, November 3rd. Well, David, it has been a pretty wild election cycle. Um, thanks for doing it with me. <laughs> we are going to close out the 2019-2020 statewide ballot measure cycle here come November 3rd. Uh, we have seen uh, measures uh, filed and and getting started as early as December of the election, like of like as early as December of 2020, we could start seeing measures for the next cycle for the 21-22 cycle. So we will continue our work, of course. But I just want to say thanks. Um, I just want to express my my special appreciation for all the work that you do to update our ballot tracker. That is such it has been such a great resource for so many people. Um, if you just go to the, the Brownstein ballot tracker, um, if you Google that, you'll you'll find it statewide ballot um, tracker. You will find that. So thanks, David. It's been really, really fun to do all of this with you. Oh, it's been great. And thanks for all the information, Sarah. You, you are uh, such a resource here in uh, Colorado for everything that's on the ballot and, and related there too. Well, we're going to leave it in our listeners' hands and leave it in the hands of all the other voters in Colorado. And we will be back at some point um, after the election to, you know, either talk about how it all went down and or to talk about what's coming up next. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit BHFS.com for more information.